Everywhere we go, we are surrounded by screens. Surrounded by people whose attention is fixed on screens. They're everywhere. Have we entered a techno-utopia or a virtual prison? Should we be celebrating unreservedly or should we be cautious and skeptical? Is it the greatest leap in productivity or the biggest setback from the things most meaningful in life? Has today's connectivity drawn us closer to one another or are we strangely more disjointed? Is our social experience richer and deeper or more shallow and artificial? Has it brought us nearer to God or are we building a tower of Babel? Is it all of these things or none of them? Whatever it is, it has certainly captivated us. To say that things have changed dramatically since the first telegraph in 1844 is an understatement. Yet how many realize that the telegraph was as revolutionary to culture as the printing press? Well, the telegraph was truly a milestone in human communications. 
uh, it was really the start of virtuality. We think of the internet as allowing us to communicate in this great cyberspace world facelessly and thinly, and yet the telegraph, for the first, for the first time, the telegraph allowed human beings to connect across distance instantaneously, simultaneously. So although there were only two people or a bunch of telegraph operators along the line, uh, it gave people this extraordinarily new power. And in fact, the telegraph operators of the time, who were both men and women, were flirting and chatting. They were playing checkers virtually. And their bosses had to keep a close eye on them because they were so taken with this uh, new experience of getting together. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Wired Love, an 1890 novel. In it, two telegraph operators fall in love virtually, and when they get together, they're tongue-tied until he strings a wire across two rooms of a boarding house, and finally he proposes in Morse code. So bingo, we uh, you know, had virtuality more than 100 years ago. The importance of that is that these uh, changes in our life have been building for a very long time. All that we're struggling with didn't come in with the Blackberry or the iPod. So uh, we need to look deeply back in history to understand what we're wrestling with. Until the invention of the telegraph, it was not possible to communicate any information beyond earshot or eyesight simultaneously. Or as Marshall McLuhan stated, it was not until the advent of the telegraph that messages could travel faster than a messenger. The telegraph paved the trail for telephones, radio, television, and the internet. It created a new era of simultaneous living. No doubt things have been changing fast. Who would have imagined that the family in the 50s who stopped in front of the department store window to admire the new display of TVs would give rise to a society with more TVs than children per household? In fact, there are now more TVs than there are people per household. My family doesn't fit the national average. God has blessed us with four children, and many might think we're odd for not having a TV in our home. But the RV we often travel in came equipped with two TVs. One is never used, and the other only rarely. I began traveling across the country with my family after starting a nonprofit organization in 2005 called Media Talk 101 which is dedicated to teaching about media discernment in the light of following Christ. I've had the opportunity to speak at churches, schools, camps, and conferences, and also began producing materials to help educate others on the subject. This was not something I'd anticipated ever doing years ago when I got my start in ministry. After high school, I moved to Chicago to work with a church, reaching out to inner-city children and youth. I started to use my skills of freestyle BMX writing for outreach purposes, as a platform for sharing biblical truths and the life-changing message of the gospel of Christ. This was the beginning of my ministry to youth and adults that has now spanned over two decades. What started out with a bicycle eventually branched out into music and then ministering as a pastor. In all of this, I recognized that media and entertainment was one of the biggest stumbling blocks to spiritual growth and family health in our nation. I know I'm not the only one concerned, so I set out to interview other authors, speakers, pastors, and teachers on this subject and there are several concerns that are usually brought up. The first is media consumption. Presently, the screen time for the average American child is over 53 hours a week. And so, you know, our, we have a very out of balance 
diet in terms of activity diet for the typical American child, and it's overbalanced in the direction of media and technology. The average young person, by the time he or she graduates from high school, will have seen anywhere from 18,000 to 22,000 hours of television. That means they will have spent more time in front of a television set than they will have spent in a classroom. And the kids are doing the social things out of class all the time. They average, according to Nielsen Media, 3,339 text messages per month. When Pew Research did a study of youth and digital tools, they were astounded by the number of teenagers who sleep with the cell phone under their pillow on. If, it, if a text message comes through at 2 o'clock in the morning, they want it to wake them up. The man said to me, he said, we'd like your opinion about something. I said, well, I'll try to be helpful. And he said, well, the, we're having a struggle with our 15-year-old daughter who refuses to turn off her cell phone at night because she wants to get any text messages that might come. He says, I hear the pinging go on in the middle of the night. He says, it's driving me nuts, and I know it's really interfering with her sleep. All of the technological devices that have emerged in the last 100 years have resulted in an all-you-can-eat media buffet. And over the years, we have been conditioned to pile more and more on our plates. Aside from the amount of time that is spent, are there other concerns regarding media consumption? I took a trip to the Seattle Children's Research Hospital to meet up with Dr. Dimitri Kostakis, who is one of the nation's leading research doctors studying the effects of media on young children. The newborn's brain triples in size in the first two years of life. It's an extraordinary period of brain growth, unparalleled over the entire lifespan. Uh, and it does that in direct response to external stimulation. So if you will, the minds of children are fine-tuned to the world in which they inhabit. And the concern uh, that I have had in my lab for some time is that if we expose children during that critical developmental period to what I call a hyper-stimulating environment, too much television that happens in a surreal pacing, which a lot of television does, will condition babies' minds to expect high levels of input. They will come to view themselves as living in a world that is so fast-paced, that quickly changes scenes, uh, and then by comparison, reality will seem boring. It doesn't happen fast enough. We'll shorten their attention spans. And what we've found in studies that we've done is just that. The more television children watch before the age of three, the more likely they are to have shorter attention spans when they begin school. And we found further that those effects have a lot to do with the pacing of the programming that children watch. So the more fast-paced programming they watch during that developmental period, the more likely they will be to have attentional problems later in life. The American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended for many years now that children under the age of two should be discouraged from watching any television. So in the same study that we found that the more television children watch before the age of three, the shorter their attention spans were later, we also found that the more cognitive stimulation they got before the age of three, and we measured cognitive stimulation by how often you read to your child, how often you take your child to the museum, how often you sing to your child, the kinds of things that many parents think of as being good for babies. Uh, we found that the more of those kinds of activities babies had, actually the less likely they were to have shorter attention spans later in life. So if you think of it, 
These are really two sides of the same coin. There are certain things we can do early in a baby's life that promote their attention span, and there are thir certain things we can do early on that hinder it. There are different attention systems within the brain. We have one attention system deep within the brain, in the limbic brain. I call it the reactive attention system. It is involuntary, hardwired. We don't have to learn it. It is hard. We are hardwired to pay attention to things that move and things that are emotionally stimulating. So that's the one that's working when I'm deeply engrossed in a great mystery. Okay, I'm reading a great mystery, and out of the very corner of my eye, I see a little mouse run along the floorboard. Where would my attention be focused? On that mouse. Okay? It's called the orientation response. We're wired to fit, pay attention to things that move or things that are emotionally stimulating. There's another type of attention. That's the one that we use when we are paying attention to something that isn't moving, something that isn't emotionally stimulating. For many kids today who have a very, very heavy media diet, what they have is an overdeveloped reactive attention system and an underdeveloped focused attention system. And so we have a, a growing epidemic of distraction because kids are always responding to all of this technology that is constantly vying for their attention. And a lot of the ways that we used to develop focused attention system had disappeared. The late preacher Matthew Henry once wrote the following about child training. The branch is easily bent when it is tender. The younger a child is, the more easily influenced they can be, like a flexible young branch of a tree. As young children develop media appetites in their early years, it is likely that those appetites will only grow larger and more rigid. The concern doesn't stop with toddlers. Dr. Jeff Myers has worked with young adults for many years. The basics look like this. When a person is executing on a task, you give them a task, they have to think it through and figure out what to do. It stimulates a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So that's the front part of the brain here. You can imagine, you've seen pictures of the brain, so you can imagine what that looks like on the inside. You, you're seeing activity in that part of the brain. Now, there's another part of the brain that's really essential to, in this way as well, and we call it the nucleus accumbens. It's the pleasure center of the brain. If you were to see the brain from the front right here, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the executive center of the brain is right here. The, nucleus accumbens is down here. What happens when somebody's really working on something they find absolutely compelling and interesting, it floods this whole part of the brain with activity in a way that actually stimulates the pleasure center of the brain. So when you work at something you really find interesting, it brings pleasure to you. The studies in media are really disconcerting in this way because we're finding that video games, for example, are really overwhelming kind of media, HDTV and things like that that are so amazing and incredible, 3D. It stimulates the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center of the brain, by draining blood away from the executive center of the brain. So it gives people the sense of accomplishment without ever having actually done anything. It has the same effect in the brain as somebody, except for the actual brain damage part of it, as somebody who smokes crack. It gives them the sense that they've done something really great when in fact they've done nothing at all. That's the effect that so much of the media has on kids today. And people ask me, well, you know, why are so many young men passive? I can tell you the answer. It's very simple. We've arranged the culture to trick their brains into thinking that they've done something when in fact they haven't.
one of the basic principles of, uh, of brain functioning and brain development is captured in a little phrase that the neuroscientists like to use, and that's the phrase, the neurons that fire together wire together. Now, uh, an English translation of that is, whatever the brain does a lot of is what the brain gets good at. And, you know, that's true whether someone is learning how to play tennis, whether someone is learning how to do math, or whether someone is learning, uh, spending hours and hours playing video games. Another concern that many are raising with regard to media and technology is the subject of multitasking. Kids are absolutely convinced that they can multitask. Young, young kids tell me, you may not be able to uh, multitask, Dr. Walsh, because you're an old guy, but we can do it because we've been raised with it. One uh, piece of research out of Stanford recently um, showed that when you learn, if you're learning something and you're multitasking, actually you're not going to remember what you learned very well. Um, you're using parts of your brain related to more automatic activity if you're multitasking while studying or doing your homework and um, you know, you're not using the parts of your brain related to deep memory. And so the research has been done and it's very clear even though young people think they can multitask, they can't because our brains are not built for it. Our brains are only built to focus attention on one thing at a time. Now, if things don't take focused attention, we could do multiple things. So I can chew gum and walk and carry on a conversation because chewing gum and walking don't take a lot of attention. But if I'm trying to focus attention, I can't divide that effectively. When we try to multitask, we, we lose speed, efficiency, and accuracy. And the research is very clear on that. It has been pointed out that many of the problems we are facing today didn't start with the Blackberry or the iPod. Let's go back 100 years. On the Titanic's maiden voyage in 1912, she had some of the latest and most powerful communication technology, the wireless telegraph. This new technology not only provided critical communication between ships, it also offered the passengers a new amenity. Imagine being on a cruise ship today with only one cell phone for all the passengers to send or receive a text message. Not only would you have to wait your turn, but the message had to be typed out with only one key. In the four and a half days until it struck the iceberg, the Titanic's radio operators had sent and received 250 passenger telegrams. On the night of the disaster, Jack Phillips, the senior officer, was feverishly trying to catch up on passenger communications when a message came in from the SS Masaba, warning of icebergs spotted at specific coordinates. The Masaba waited for confirmation that the message made it to the bridge. They didn't get a reply from Jack. Instead, he continued to send passenger messages. Second officer Charles Lightoller had been on duty that night and wrote the following in his autobiography. The one vital report that came through but which never reached the bridge was from the Masaba. Phillips was not to know the extreme urgency of the warning or that we were at the time actually entering the area given by the Masaba. Phillips explained when I said that I did not recollect any Masaba report. I just put the message under a paperweight at my elbow until I squared up what I was doing before sending it to the bridge. That delay proved fatal. It is a sober illustration of the potential distractions that come along with the benefits of technology. Maggie Jackson is a journalist and author of the book Distracted. Her concerns about media and technology don't stop with multitasking, but even more importantly, 
its effect on relationships. I would say that with respect to technology today, I'm most concerned that we are actually shifting for the worse the definition of what it means to be a human. You know, if we are satisfied with the snippet relationship, with the faceless communication, even for our most intimate loved ones, then we stand a chance of you know, roboticizing relationships. I think that step by step we can make our technologies return to their rightful places as tools. They're not panaceas, they're not lifestyles, they're not, I don't think, appendages. You know, we're connecting on steroids, but what types of connecting are we uh, creating? That's the question. Social networkings have a drawing power. Number one, because everybody's doing it. Number two, because you feel like you're connected. We all want to feel like we're important and like we're wanted and, and we like we have friends. Once you find like 10 friends, you're like, oh, maybe I'll see if this person's on there, that person's on there, and then it just gets out of hand. So I got to the point where I was probably on Facebook every day, all day long. I had it on my phone, at work, my personal laptop, just staying connected. I kept hearing all these messages. What is this keeping you from being connected to God and that has more power? And um, those are idols. And I felt like Facebook was an idol for me. You want to disconnect yourself from that, but then there's a part of you that want to always see what's going on in somebody else's life. And so I was like, well, Lord, you know, I feel like I'm getting disconnected from you. Perhaps I need to be on a sabbatical from Facebook. I was off Facebook maybe about a month, if that long, maybe three weeks, and then I got back on. And I noticed as soon as I got back onto Facebook, those feelings came back, you know, this, uh, a different me. You know, I saw things I didn't want to see on Facebook again, and I'm like, why do I keep getting up here doing this to myself? I do think it's very hard to di get disconnected from Facebook. Um, I think it has to be a, a, a deep choice, um, even, you know, something that God has to help you with because it's so enchanting and you feel like there's a void in your life once you break free from it. I think the biggest thing is building a persona that's not real. You know, you post up these pictures because you want to look good. You post up videos because you want to seem important. Um, you write statuses to make you seem like you're deep, <laughs> like you have some kind of God-given insight. In my personal experience, I feel like um, Facebook is causing people to I think it's more shallow with relationships on Facebook. Um, it's just distorted because we feel like we are getting more connected to people because you, you have a scope into their lives. So we feel like, hey, I know this person, I know what they're doing. But I think that's just the surface. We don't really know what a person is dealing with, nor do we care. I won't say I'm going to be off Facebook forever, but right now I do enjoy this feeling that I have of being, being away from Facebook. I just feel like I have more time to do more things, you know, it's, it's just a piece that you can't experience any other way. When you're really down and out, you can't go to Facebook, you know, you, it's those face-to-face, -face, the family, your closest friends, your church, that's going to be there for you. Social networking sites are an enhancer for life relationships, but it's not a replacement. Nicholas Carr stirred things up when he published an article in The Atlantic titled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? He is certainly not the only person to be concerned about the potential intellectual costs because of today's technology and media. 
Another person who has voiced his concerns is Professor Mark Bauerlein. My daughter Elizabeth and I visited Mark who was serving at Princeton on a teaching fellowship and whose continuing work is at Emory University as professor of English. He is also author of the book The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. The digital age has swept into teenagers and young adults' lives like a tidal wave. It has now affected every waking moment of their lives. In their room at night, not only do they have the TV with 300 cable stations, uh, but they also have the video game console as well, and they have the laptop, of course, and, and the cell phone. This makes social life a 24-7 condition, and it makes teenagers now growing up with one another, taking their cues from one another to, again, an unprecedented degree. And this is something altogether new in the history of human civilization. Never have teenagers been able to screen out adults so thoroughly as they're able to now. I asked Mark what he would say to his students who are caught up in the digital age. How would he exhort them to aspire to better things? The more you hang out with one another, the more you get online and interact back and forth, the more you just become a mass. You know, it's a great big race to the middle. That, 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 that's what happens to you if you don't do something different with yourselves. And that means reading books, knowing a little bit about history. Read Witness by Whitaker Chambers, his biography of being a communist spy and then turning and, and uh, going to the government and giving evidence about espionage, communist espionage in the United States. This is a great story. You should all know this. You'll encounter people who actually faced real stakes in their lives. He didn't sit around and say, oh, my girlfriend drunk dumped me. I'm so, I feel horrible. Let me go talk to my friends. No, I'm going to go change my Facebook page. The trivia of youth are amplified by these digital tools. What is the motto of YouTube? Broadcast yourself. Well, guess what? Yourself may not be that important. That may not be such a great subject to focus so much time on. One of the dismaying things about you guys is you get together and all you do is talk about your friends and what you do. You don't talk about anything else. You know how boring you are? I give them, I give them that and, and, and uh, they look at me and roll their eyes. Well, there was the scholar from New York University named Neil Postman, really important guy, he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. The title of the book should tell us something because muse means to think. Ah means not. So amuse means to not think. You should think of that next time you go to an amusement park. This is where people go so that they don't think, right? That's the idea. He actually proves in that book, the more television you watch, the dumber you get. Three years ago, I picked up a copy of Neil Postman's Amusing Herself to Death. So he was a college professor, and so one of the exercises he'd have his students do was to go on a, I believe in the book it was a one-month media fast, so I just decided to do the exact same thing one month, let's um, just shut down all media. No television, no internet, no blogging, and um, anything that was digitally um, related. Our children were, were not initially enthusiastic about 
the Media Fest. They were terrified. Our first impressions were rather shocked and a little bit scared. Um, but as we got along closer to the day and we um, we were praying about it, we were thinking about it a lot, um, we, were, we were excited. I don't think one of our children would say, no, we wish we never had to do it because um, there is a benefit. It just gives you perspective on how much time you're spending doing stuff. I couldn't stop thinking about music, just wanting to turn on the radio or or just look up something just for fun or just watch a quick movie. Um, it was pretty shocking how addicted I was, and I didn't like that at all. And it kind of helps if any sort of addictions are building up, it kind of helps to break those. It is a fast. and. It takes time, and it's not just one one day and then you're through with your pain. No, it keeps going. But then once we get near the end, it um, it's easier. You enjoy it. You really can see the difference. It's not just about taking away. If all you do is take away from your kids something and leave them nothing, that's, they're in no better spot. They loved the extra time of, of playing basketball with Dad or playing cards with me or just working on extra things. During the media fast, you know, we still play games, so it's not a, it's not a game fast, but um, what, how the game is delivered is really important. But when we have a board game, it's much more um, conversational. It's much more um, you know, slow down and you can take breaks and it's not you know, a little bit less pressure to it. And then we do family devotions, but some of the most significant theological discussions have happened as we just discuss something over a board game, having normal conversations. Our lives are so busy and noisy, and it's also it's like it brings a quietness, and then quietness is when you, you know, hear God's voice. It is so sweet, the silence, and not just the silence, but the peace. Because if you're if you're doing everything and you have this noise going through your head, you really cannot have peace, and you don't know that you're missing it until you have it. The first year we did it, I remember um, going and just. My chores were done, my schoolwork was done, and so what do I do? I, I go outside and read the Bible for hours. And before then, it just wasn't, it didn't occur to me or I didn't have time. Sure, I read the Bible, but just to spend hours and enjoy it and have an amazing time doing it, it was, it was really an eye-opener. I'll watch a certain movie before and then after the movie fast, I get stronger convictions and standards, higher standards, and then I'll go back and watch it and think, what did I see? in this, what what was so appealing. Most important thing for me, for my kids to have, is that they would love God with all their heart and know Him and live their life in relationship with Him. This has been so good in our lives, and it hasn't been boring at all. We're not just saying no media, but we're saying use it in responsible and God-glorifying ways. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm captivated this morning with the technology. All right, um, we're going uh, to open it up for, for question and comment. Just a couple of things. If I can uh, get some strong gentlemen to help us with the, uh, with the pulpit here, just go in faith and God will help you. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I thought about immediately with, the, with uh, one of the first, and, and we've seen this before, it's usually not something that... Um, that folks like to talk about, because uh, a lot of us, a lot of us see the time-wasting things that other people do, but not the things that we do that waste time. 
We'll give the big hearty amens to the things that we don't like anyways, that we wouldn't do if we had the opportunity. But when someone else, but the things in our own life that we do that are time-wasting, this, those are the, that's when we have to go to the bathroom. And so uh, one of the things that, one of the, com- the first um, pieces of, of information they listed was that 53 hours a week is what the average teenager, the average kid spends in front of a television. That's a full-time job plus 13 hours overtime. It's 53 hours a week. I remember being in middle school and talking to my friends about uh, what did you guys do? Where did you go? And my brother and I were in a band at the time. And so I would tell them, oh, we were in Temple, Texas this past weekend. And we did this. And we had this concert. And we did this thing at church. And, uh, you know, and we went here. And uh, my dad took us to, to, you know, hear this music. And, oh, cool. And they're like, how in the world do you have time to do all of this stuff? But the truth is, if you're working a full-time job, and going to school, which is what 53 hours equates to, you're not going to have a lot of time for much else. And a lot of times we find ourselves saying, well, I would love to do this thing for God. I would love to do that thing. But really, the time isn't there. It has a lot more to do with how we're budgeting our time than, than what's going on. But um, you've heard Pastor Ruby mention this before, Malcolm Gladwell's book about, uh, called Outliers. And in there, he highlights a principle. He did not create it. He's just highlighting the, the studies that were done about the 10,000-hour rule. And what that is in a, in a kind of a Cliff Notes version is that if you do something with focused attention, not just, you know, you can go to the gym for 10,000 hours, but it doesn't mean you're going to be in shape unless you're doing something there. But if you do something for focused attention for 10,000 hours, you'll be a master at that thing. And, and he uh, introduces it with like a uh, violinist and how every, you know, these, all these different kids start playing violin at the age of five. Some of them get into school band. Some of them uh, become music teachers. And then some of them play in an elite status. And those are the people that put in the 10,000 hours. They became a master at this. If you caught this, they said upon graduation, a, a, a normal child upon graduation on average would have over 22,000 hours of television. They could have mastered two things at that point, 22,000 hours of television. And mastery, the way he defines it in the book, would be like the top of a professional athlete. If you were a hockey player, he talks about hockey players. If you played baseball or you played the guitar, you would be the like Carlos Santana of guitar players. So it's not like you would be pretty good, but a master at that. So that would be two things that you could master before you got out of high school with the average time a kid spends in front of a television. And... Um, it's pretty alarming. Uh, I know uh, having done children's church for a, for a long time uh, and seeing this in school, when we feed our kids a diet of television, we're really, we're really wreaking havoc on their attention uh, span. And, and I can tell you, kids that get up and they go to the bathroom every five minutes in children's church, kid watches TV nine times out of ten. They've got no attention span. And here's the other thing. A kid that watches television or movies constantly, they start to become an aficionado at this. They can tell you a bad movie from a good one, usually by looking at the poster or cover. Like, oh, that's not any good. Who's, that? Who's in it? Who directed it? They know all, they know all this information. And then, oh, that's not, any, that's not any good. So think of this. You could spend a million dollars making a film, and not even that movie would get your kid's attention. You take an ordinary-looking man or woman, stick them in a classroom with 30 kids, and have them sit in a chair in air-conditioned room and have someone just speak to them, and somehow we think 
That person is going to capture our kids' imagination. We're upset with that person when our kid's not making good grades or they're not doing well. We're frustrated with them because, you know, my kid's not behaving in class or they're having problems. And, teacher, what are you doing? When all the while we're filling these kids with a diet of media, of heavy television, of, of movies because it's convenient, and we're, we're wreaking havoc on their attention system, and then the kids have attention deficit disorder and they can't pay attention. There's all these other problems that come out of that. But the truth is, is, is what we're doing is we're wasting away that focus that they they would have because if you're watching explosions on the TV and people shouting and wielding guns or you know somebody riding off in the sunset or whatever it is it's gonna be really hard to pay attention in class and I've played video games a lot when I was younger for a period of time and I can tell you I remember being in class and I'm like oh when <laughs> so it's only been five minutes like when is this gonna end and uh, but the awesome thing is is that God can restore our attention span, and he can help us, that you can undo this thing, and that God wants more of us. We think we don't have it to give, but the truth is there's probably some room in there in our time budget that we can give back to God, and uh, God will help us, and he'll bless us with that. Um, Got a hand here in the back, uh, Doris, uh, Brent, and then uh, Brother David. Um, I remember back in 1986, Paul Campo, I got to go uh, to the East Coast to the Bible conference there, and he preached a sermon on uh, our future generation, future generation wanting knowledge over relationship. And I think I saw that tape, too, and I, I remember that. as like, in, I don't even know if we even think we even had cell phones then. If they did, they have periodical people had them with the big gigantic ones but it was like to think about that I was like wow and you know I, I'm thinking I was talking to some people that aren't even saved and I'm like golly man I remember we used to go play manhunt man spend all day and you knew you had to be home before the sunset you had all day long we dig a hole in the ground and we had so much fun use a stick or something you know and we we were constantly you know captivating ourselves with our own imagination doing things with almost like nothing Whereas, like you said today, but we had relationships with people to sit down and, and, you know, with our family, have dinner, have lunch, and those kind of things, and be able to sit in class, too. I mean, you never heard of an attention deficit. You never heard of any of that stuff. You never heard of child obesity back then unless it was like an actual, you know, a physical issue, you know, because kids were always outside playing all the time, you know. And now it's, it's, you look at all that, how it's escalating because, you know, just on that, that people have no, no idea. They want the knowledge, 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 but they don't realize they're not getting anything out of that knowledge. You know, everyone thinks, like he said on the thing, everyone thinks that, they're, that we're all it. I'm it because I know this. I know the top this, top that. When it's like, so does everybody else. So. Yeah, absolutely. I know we have some, some teachers here. Would, it, would, any, um, would any of them like to comment on? I, you know, a while back when I was in school, it wasn't that long ago, but it's getting longer and longer. Um, uh, when I was in school, it seemed to be there wasn't that many um, students who were quiet and withdrawn, that they wouldn't speak to anybody, that they had very challenging social issues, that it was very rare. That was, that was the exception and not the rule. And you probably knew who that kid was. And maybe there, was any, there wasn't one in every class of yours, but there was one that you knew and most people knew them. They probably got picked on as well. But everyone kind of could identify who that person was. And today, it, I think those numbers might be multiplying. Uh, Pete in the back, our, um, our uh, school teacher is going to weigh on this. Tell me if I'm crazy or not. Uh, crazy or not, yes. Um, all I can say is after the 34 years, 
I've seen uh, the increase in the video stimulus dumb down the population to the point where there is, they are so disoriented uh, as to, like he, they said in the video, paying attention. Their de mental development. I, I work with elementary. I work with middle school. I went into the high school. And at every one of those stages, their focus, their, their ability to focus over the years had diminished. So basically and simply, the more they watched, like it said in the video, the less attentive they were in class. And now with the addition of the uh, social networking, they're coming in too tired. So you have several things working against the student. One, they're tired from you know, their constant communication or playing or watching something. And they're expecting the teacher to be the entertainment. And if you're not, then they're going to fall asleep because they're tired. So that works against the norm that should be happening, which is the acquisition of knowledge, the, the getting of terms, the being able to think clearly. You know, uh, invent, right now in school, spelling isn't important anymore. What is important is, can you write it so it sounds almost like it? And, you know, these are tests that are being given to children. And if they can write the way it would sound, then they're going to be given credit for this type of spelling. It's called in creative spelling. Good grief. They even have terminology for it. So we're not really looking at our society and in, in education being uplifted. They're forgetting what their function is. Their function is to develop that individual to function as an adult in the society. We're not allowing that to happen. Parents are, baby, uh, are having their children babysat by the media in any level of media. We're talking video games. We're talking uh, just being on social media. So, you know, it, it's not a very good state of being. Uh, my particular school had a real rude awakening. Their uh, test scores for STAR, uh, across the board, they bombed. I attribute it to uh, media. These kids just are not disciplined enough anymore to come in, focus, get what they need to function on a standardized test. All right. Our City schools. Brent, in the back. Um, two things. First, uh, growing up, m uh, my uh, my mom never allowed my brother and I to play video games. I was actually telling Sarah this yesterday, and uh, some men on the way uh, up to the men's discipleship. She would allow us to play one hour of, of a computer game, which was like a sports game, and then after that we were forced to be outside or forced to be reading. And uh, and I, we, we really appreciate that. You know, you... you uh, we look back, you know, 10 years later, and we, I, I, can, I can tell you, both my brother will tell you, we greatly appreciate it because we didn't, we grew up outside, we grew up, you know, yeah. in the late 90s and uh, early 2000s, you know, just enjoying 
uh, what life had to offer instead of being captivated by a, a video game or anything like that. And then secondly, um, is I have these kids all the time come into my office and, uh, and all of a sudden they have an iPad in, in, in their hands or, they, or their, their parents give them a cell phone. And, uh, and I know I don't have kids and I know it's harder to say this, but when I see a kid with a cell phone in his hands, I'm like, wait, I didn't get a cell phone until I was like 15 years old. And they know how to use an iPad and an iPhone better than I do. And, and I have a, a smartphone, it, it drives me crazy because I'm like, these kids are going to grow up with no attention span. How do you expect your kids to sit in front of a church service, listen for 45 minutes if they only know how to play yeah. a video game and be simulate for just a few seconds or a few moments? Yeah. And so. Absolutely. And so one of the things that you'll hear people say is that no, 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 we're preparing them. That these kids are growing up in a digital age. They're growing up in an, in an environment where this is what they're going to have access to. They're going to know this stuff. They're smarter than us because they can figure it out. There's, I don't know if you figured this out, but there's, on most phones, there's one button. Yeah, it, it's not a challenge to figure out what button to push. And so they're like, oh, my kids. And so what, but the truth is, is, is that's not what's happening. He talked about the development of an infant's brain, um, that it will grow three, that will uh, triple in size in the first, I think, two to three years of the, of, uh, a baby's life, it's like, you know, what, what we're doing, a lot of times we can wreak havoc on, on their, wreaking havoc on their attention span, which is, you know, which is not going to help with any mode of learning that they're going to be introduced to in school. Uh, Brother David. Uh, yes. Um, I was, uh, when I had come back from Korea, uh, my, my niece and my nephew were very young, and um, I was tired of, tired of seeing the same old people that you know, were raising their kids with a TV. And I knew that, that for the first five years of a child's development, they will be molded and they will develop their habits according to what they see and what they're taught. And so I went ahead and told my mom, I said, look, I'm going to do an experiment with these kids. Now, we're going to take educational toys. Instead of the regular standard toys, we're going to take educational toys where they learn numbers, where they learn what they're supposed to do in school, and we're going to teach them from the time they're toddlers to the time that they stop playing with toys. We did this for the first five years, and they grew up to be honor students in high school, graduating with honors in college. They graduated honor society. They graduated with the top honors in college. Bethany's one of them. And my other nieces and nephews also are honor graduates in their respective colleges. And I challenge any adult with a young child today to do that, and you'll reap the benefits of keeping them away from television, keeping them in books and in educational toys where they learn something will greatly benefit their development in the future. Uh, we're, uh, we're, I know that we've got a lot of hands on this, and there's another half of this video that gets a lot more into the biblical application of, of all of this that, that uh, we'll see in the near future. And, um, and so we'll be able to get to those comments. But I do want to say this uh, before we go is um, shift gears just a little bit, is that what happens is we get a steady diet of media. What it does is as adult Christians, because it's, it's easy us. It's easy for us to talk about the, the kids in the Sunday school rooms, but we'll bring it into this one. What it does is it erodes our convictions. Because we get exposed to things 
we, we, uh, on the television, we invite people into our house that we would, we would never speak to on the streets. People that are vile, people that do stuff. If we saw a woman dressed that way, we'd cover our kid's face or we'd turn our heads or we'd go somewhere else. We, we bring those folks into our living room. And, and so what happens is, is when we do this, we start to erode our convictions. And when we erode our convictions, you'll start to accept things as right or normal that are not right or normal. You'll start to speak and use language that you would normally not use. You will say things that, that will be shocking in a church or someone will be like, that's, an, you know, that's inappropriate. And you're like, doesn't everybody do this? Doesn't everybody say this? And one of the reasons why, one of the evidence that I have for this is just a theory of mine, we're going to hear more about this in, the, in this video, is that when, when people are learning another culture, one of the things they tell them to do is watch TV in their culture. You want to learn Spanish, watch the novellas. I don't recommend that, by the way. But, um, uh, and so, but they say, you want to learn English, watch the TV. And they, they specifically will tell people, this is, these are Asian immigrants, to watch reality TV because you see people interacting and what, which is such, such terrible advice. But what happens is I would speak to these Vietnamese immigrants and they would tell me our cultural differences. And one of the things they would say all the time is they would say, you know, in Vietnam, men are faithful to their wives. People get married, they don't get divorced. They get married, they stay married. You know, in Vietnam, women cover themselves. They dress, they don't dress, you know, with all their, everything showing and all of that. And they said, you know, not like in America where everyone is out messing around and, you know, no one's wearing any clothes and on and on. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm talking with him and I'm like, well, it's really not American culture, you know, like that, it, you know, it used to be more like what you're describing. But the truth is, is what happens is they think I'm seeing this all the time. This must be what it's like. This must be normal. And even though we can sit down in front of something, watch it, and know this is fake, this is, this is scripted and everything, when we see it and we're exposed to it over and over, we believe it's normal, and we start to think, well, you know, I'm pretty better than most people because everyone's out doing these things. It starts to normalize sinful behavior, and it'll, it'll change our perspective. It'll erode our, our convictions. It'll change our speech and what we do and what we allow and permit. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's the truth. I know, I know it's very quiet in here today. And so, uh, so I know you guys uh, don't think I'm going crazy up here, but, uh, but I know this from my own personal experience, having seen things. And like she said, I went back and saw the movie and I was like, my goodness, like, why did I think this was okay? Or like, how come I didn't have a problem with this before? And we, we can normalize ourselves and we have to be cautious, but the power to change is in the gospel. That Jesus Christ can take our fried attention spans, our zeroed out imagination, and our, uh, you know, ability, we don't have any time for this thing, that, that thing of God, and he can help and restore those things in our life, just like when we get a cut and it heals and it covers and, the, and it stops bleeding, that Jesus can do the same thing in our lives when we say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to put the brakes on this, we're going to keep this from our kids, we're going to be cautious of what media that we're introducing ourselves into and what becomes a normal diet that we're taking in, and, and God will help us, and he can, uh, he can help us. How many believe God can help restore our attention span? Amen. And our kids, man, there's hope in the gospel. I mean, we're going to stop right now, and we'll start service here in a few minutes.